Amen. Let's open our Bibles once again. I forgot my Bible down here. You guys can be seated. Um, we are here uh, this morning in Matthew chapter 3 once again and just want to uh, kind of pause on the narrative this week. We'll, get, we'll be getting back to looking at this in context next week, but uh, this is the portion of Scripture that details the baptism of Jesus Christ, and it reveals something very important uh, about him and about God to us, and I think it is, uh, I think it behooves us this morning to kind of stop and, and just consider what that is. It is the, the fundamental truth of our faith, the fundamental truth of our faith. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 3, and, and we're going to look at his baptism and just kind of see what it teaches us. You know, we were talking about repentance last week, John's, um, John's uh, sermon on repenting from sin. We must turn from our sins and self, but now we're going to see what we must turn, or rather who we must turn to. That's, that's how it kind of fits in the narrative. That's kind of how it fits in our uh, Christian walk. But we're going to see Christ in his relationship to the Father and his relationship to the Spirit this morning. And so John, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter uh, 3, verse 13. And since we just sat down, I'm not going to ask you to stand again. But uh, I would ask you to read this with me from the board together. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I got a chance to catch up with Ryan Rainbolt this morning. You guys remember him. He's the, uh, he's the missionary that uh, spoke to us uh, a few weeks ago. And actually, I guess it's been a couple of months ago now how time flies. And and they're getting, they're getting situated in Mumbai and they were telling me about, uh, about everything that's kind of going on there. And, and you, know, you know, in India, the, the number one religion there is, is Hinduism. And I have a little experience with that because um, you guys know my, my wife's uh, mom, before she died, remarried a man from Nepal named Sarin, and I've, I've told you a little bit about him, wonderful gentleman, and he grew up as a Hindu as well. And I can tell you one of the biggest challenges of, of sharing the gospel and teaching the gospel and planting churches in areas where they have a pantheon of gods like that. If, if The last I heard, um, someone said one time that Hinduism has over one million gods. I, that sounds like an exaggeration, I, I don't know, but, but I know there is a lot. And, and one of the problems with witnessing to someone like that is that they have no trouble accepting Jesus as God. They have no trouble accepting God of the Bible. They have no trouble accepting the Holy Spirit. The problem is, is that they just kind of add them on to all their other gods. 
And what they have difficulty with is kind of transitioning that, that God is not just a, another God, but he is the only God. And kind of giving up that, that, um, that, that tradition that they have is, is very difficult. And we can look at that and say that, my word, that would be difficult. But is it any different in America is it really any different? I mean, uh, A.W. Tozer, I believe it was, said that what a person believes about God is the most important thing about him or her. And I really don't think, even though, yeah, you may, we may not have little statues in our homes in America, but the truth is, is we have a pantheon of gods in America. And forget our religious freedom, which I'm, I'm thankful for, but, but, but forget that for just a moment. I'm just talking about our own hearts, no, we may not have little statues in our homes, but there are things in our life that, that creep into our heart and vie for our attention and compete for our affections and want to take us away from our uh, adherence to God alone. Do, do we not have that? Do we not struggle with that? And so my purpose this morning in, in trying to deal with this text and trying to help you understand the doctrine and the teaching of the Trinity of God is so that you will allow this fundamental truth to shape your lives and help you to understand how it affects your daily walk. And, and as we say at Calvary, our goal is to teach you three things, right? Three pillars that we look at. What are they? They are to know the faith, live the faith, and share the faith. And what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna look at the doctrine of the Trinity and we're gonna see how that teaching shapes that process. We're gonna see how it affects that in our daily lives. Beloved, we must acknowledge as Christians, this is vital. If you don't acknowledge this, you are not a Christian. We must acknowledge our God for who he is and who he reveals himself to be in scripture. We must acknowledge the truth of our God. Why is that? You know, I think a lot of people today really don't take a lot of time to understand the Trinity, first of all, because it's one of those doctrines that's just above us. We, we can't understand it. I'm not gonna lie to you. This is a difficult doctrine. And I think a lot of people, because they, they, they don't really give it a lot of attention, is because they don't really see how it affects their daily lives. They see it as kind of this cranial thing. They see it as just kind of this uh, kind of thing that you just kind of, you're supposed to know, but there's not really anything you're supposed to do with it. There's really not any way that it affects you. And so we're gonna answer that question this morning by basically looking at two fundamental truths about our God, and then we're gonna see the importance of those truths to our lives. So if you're keeping an outline, there's two fundamental truths, and then we're gonna look at the importance of it to our lives. And so let's look, and by the way, we're gonna have some Bible drills this morning, so get ready to turn. I've put a lot of them on the board, I, and Mark, so let me apologize, a lot of slides, brother. I think this is the most slides I've ever given him in the nearly 10 years that I've been here. So what is there, like 40 slides on the, there's a lot, so, uh, so pray for Mark. But, so we're gonna look at our first fundamental truth this morning, is that simply this, there 
is one God. There is one God. We're gonna see that specifically. Probably there's no better text you can turn to than Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. This is what is known in Judaism as the Shema. You say, that's kind of a weird name. Well, that word here, that's actually that word. It's a command to hear, O Israel, Yahweh, your God, Yahweh is one. That has been called the fundamental truth of the Jewish faith, and I would extend it further. It is the fundamental truth of our faith that there is one God. You can say this even further. In fact, according to some sources, uh, some people even say that the Jews in Jesus's time would actually uh, wake up when they woke up in the morning. The first thing they would do is declare this verse that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. This was the absolute most central truth of the Old Testament and of our faith. And what is so unique about this, this is actually ground shaking at the time it was written because God does not just tell us that he is one God, but God reveals to us in scripture that he is the only God that there are no other gods other than him. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says this, see now that I even now am he and there is no God beside me. You see, Israel was coming out of Egypt and Egypt, like so many other cultures at the time and many cultures today, had a whole list of gods. And in fact, the Exodus, all of those plagues were, were kind of a WWE smackdown against one of the Egyptian gods to show that Jesus, to show that God was the only God who reigned over all creation. We could also point to Isaiah 44, verses six through eight, where he says basically the same thing. But beloved, you need to understand that this is just not in the Old Testament. It's carried through into the New Testament as well. Romans chapter three, verses 29 through 30. Uh, Paul is talking about this wonderful provision of salvation. And he, and he says here is, oh, I do have it on the board. He says, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Why? Since God is one. The New Testament does not abandon this teaching. You could also look at James chapter two, verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. He says, and then he goes on to say that even the demons know that God is one and they shudder. And so the New Testament is absolutely clear as the Old Testament is that there is one God and there is only one God. Uh, you could also look at Jude 25, God only wise. I love that wonderful hymn that is taken from that verse. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. And so there is only one God and that is the consistent testimony all the way through the scriptures. In fact, that is the whole point of creation. When you're looking at the creation story, you see that God is creating the sun. God is creating the moon. God is creating the stars. He's creating all the waters. He's creating all the mountains. Why? Because if he is creating them, then by definition, they are not gods. 
as all the ancient cultures thought they were. This is so important to understand, and beloved, believe it or not, this is a doctrine that is under attack today. It's under attack. And, it, and in some sense, I guess it's always been under attack because you're always looking at different cultures and such. But this is actually under attack by a lot of people who claim to be Christian teachers. In fact, some of the most, some of the most popular Christian teachers today on television are, teach, are denying this doctrine. You see, the word of faith movement, these TBN teachers, what they all teach is that when God created Adam, he did not create a man just in his image, but he actually created a carbon copy of himself. So what he did was he created a little God. By the way, that's why they hold so much to health and wealth, because if you're a God, you can't be poor and you certainly can't be sick. And so that's why they hold to that so much because they will teach that you are, we are little gods. They all teach this. Now, when the fall happened, we lost that. But when we are saved, when we come to Jesus Christ, guess what we get back? We get our godhood back. All the faith teachers teach this. In fact, uh, let me just give you one example. This uh, handsome devil is a guy by the name of Stephen Furtick. And last year, 2021, he, got, he caught a little heat because he said this in one of his sermons. He said, I'm not in a covenant with a person. I'm not in a covenant with a political party. I'm in a covenant with God Almighty. I am God Almighty. That's what Stephen Furtick said. By the way, I was, you know, I was willing to give him a little grace there because, I mean, as a preacher, I've had slips of the tongue and I certainly don't want a soundbite of one of my mess ups getting out and people judging me on that. So I, I tried to give him a little grace. Well, never to be disappointed, come to find out this is what he taught in 2019. He said, when God said, I am to Moses, you know, my name is I am. He was trying to get him to see, watch this. He was trying to tell Moses, you are as I am. It was not a slip of the tongue. That's exactly what he teaches. Ken Copeland says that when he reads in the Bible where God says I am, he just smiles and says, I am too. Heresy, blasphemy. Isaiah 43, 10, I want you to see this. This is absolutely critical. He says, you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understood that I am he, watch this, before me was no God formed, nor shall they be after me. Not Stephen Furtick, not Ken Copeland, not you, not me. There will be no gods that are formed after Yahweh God. He is the one and only God. He's the only one that's ever been. He's the only one that ever will be. And some of the most popular teachers of our culture today, popular quote unquote Christian teachers are denying this doctrine. Oh, by the way, Stephen Furtick, he leads Elevation Church. 
they're responsible for a lot of the praise and worship music that is being sung in churches this morning. We don't sing them. Amen? We're not gonna support that. And so, that's a soapbox. Let me get back to where I was going. So, this is a, this is a fundamental doctrine that we must understand, that there is one God. It's all there's ever been, all there ever will be. So that's the first fundamental truth. But the second fundamental truth that we need to understand is that yes, there is one God, but in God, there are three divine persons. Three divine persons. And by the way, I'm, I'm pretty particular about that language. We're not talking about manifestations here. We're not talking about parts. We're not talking about things like that. God is one eternal essence, three divine persons. That language has stood the test of time for 2,000 years. And we should use it. We should use it. And so let's look at this. What are, who are the persons? Well, you have the Father. The Father is God, is claimed God and in Scripture. Look at, uh, for example, Ephesians chapter four, verse six. Paul says that there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so God the Father is God. You could even look at uh, Psalm chapter 89, verse 26. He shall cry to me, you are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And so the Father is God. And, and to be honest with you, you're not, you're not gonna catch um, uh, a lot of disagreement on that one. So, so the Father is God. But we also see that Jesus Christ, the Son, is also God, called God in the New Testament. For example, look at Titus chapter two, verse 13. And if you wanna write down these passages and look them up later, you certainly can. But Titus chapter two, verse 13, Paul says, waiting for our blessed hope, and watch how he words this, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Paul is acknowledging fully that Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. He is our God. Jesus Christ is God, right? Uh, Colossians chapter two, verse nine is, is, is very clear here. For in him, which Paul's talking about Christ, in Christ, the, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now remember what God said in Isaiah 43, that after me will no God be formed, right? And so there was never a time that Jesus Christ was not God. He existed in eternity past with the Father. He was God in his incarnation and he is God today reigning on the throne. And by the way, this is not just New Testament. You can see this in the Old Testament as well. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, the child who will be born will be among other things, mighty God. And so once again, Jesus Christ, the son is God. In 2011, Victoria Olstein, 
wife of Joel Osteen, with him standing behind her, smiling like a peacock, said this. She said that Jesus was just a man until God touched him and put the spirit of the living God inside of him. Again, all the faith teachers teach that. All of them do. And she goes on to say that, and that's comforting today. I love how Justin Peters answers that. He says, no, that's heresy today. (laughs) Beloved, there was never a time when Jesus was not God. He was just as much God as as if he was never man. He was just as much man as if he were never God. That is a mystery, but that is the truth of scripture and we must affirm it. If they teach a different Jesus, beloved, they teach a different gospel. John chapter one, verse one, says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Who's the word? He tells us in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who was that? That was Jesus And so, Jesus Christ, the Son, is God. And then we also see the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also under a lot of attack today. Um, Almost a, uh, you know, it used to be that you had to blaspheme the Holy Spirit by uh, uh, denying what he did. Uh, Now, a lot of people are blaspheming the Holy Spirit by attributing works to him that he doesn't do. But the Holy Spirit is not just a force like the Jedi use. It's not, he's not just a power. He's not an impersonal kind of uh, fog that's floating around. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is the divine third person of the Trinity. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Paul says very clearly, now the Lord is the Spirit. And you could, and the way that's structured is that it's equative. In other words, you could reverse it. You could say, the Spirit is the Lord. And when Paul talks about the Lord, who is he talking about? He's talking about Yahweh. He's talking about the way that the New Testament brings the personal name of God over. And he, that Yahweh is the Spirit. The Spirit is Yahweh. He is the third person of the Trinity. And that verse goes on to say in verse 18, now all of this talking about our sanctification, the application of our salvation, he says that all of this comes from the Spirit who is, or excuse me, the Lord who is the Spirit. So there you have it, God, three persons, three divine persons. Now, you know, at this point though, you could almost get away You could almost get away with saying that, uh, well, you know, okay, sometimes he's the father, sometimes he's the son, sometimes he's the spirit. You could almost get away with that at this point. You could could say, you know, well, God is kind of like me. You know, when Roxanne's around, I'm her husband. When my kids are around, I'm I'm their father. And when my mother is around, I am her son. And that's uh, just kind of different modes, right? 
you could say that, you know, some people would say, well, God in the Old Testament was the Father. God uh, in the Gospels was Jesus. And now in the New Testament and moving on, God is the Holy Spirit, kind of like water, where sometimes it's a solid, sometimes it's a gas, sometimes it's a liquid, right? By the way, don't use illustrations of the Trinity. All of them fail. All of them fail. That's actually an ancient heresy known as modalism. And it was, it was rejected for a reason. And yes, there are still denominations that teach it today. T.D. Jakes being probably the most popular. And so, but you know, up until this point, you could almost get away with it until you come to the baptism of Jesus Christ. Let's turn back at our text this morning. I've taken a long way to get here, but let's turn back to our text. Now, I want you to look at verses 16 and 17. And I want you to see what happens here. Jesus, who is God the Son, right? God the Son comes up out of the water. And what happens? The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove and comes to rest on him. So there you have God, the Holy Spirit. And then a voice comes out of heaven and says, this is my beloved son. By the way, what kind of person has a son? A father, technically a mother also, but the father in this case. And here you have God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Father, all three present at the same time, in the same place, one God, and yet three distinct persons. All together at once. There is no modalism here. There is only the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. When Jesus is praying to the Father, beloved, he is, he is, he's not talking to himself. He's talking to the Father. Just like I'm talking to you this morning. And so God is one God in essence, but three distinct divine persons, just as distinct as you and I are. So Brian, explain that to us. <laughs> nope, <laughs> you can't. This is beyond us, beloved. This is, God is infinite. We are finite. This, this is above us. And we just have to accept it on faith. By the way, I'm glad there's things, I'm glad we have a God that we can't figure out, aren't you? I've said this before. A God we can figure out is a God we've made up. I don't want a God like that. I want a God who is so high above me that he can work incredible wonders in me. He can save my soul. He can transform me into the image of Christ. He can take me to be with him for all eternity, beloved. A God that I've made up or you've made up, a God who we have collectively made up cannot do that. Only the God of heaven can do that. This is the greatest mystery of our faith, but we must acknowledge the truth of our God. 
If you deny this, you are not a Christian. If, you, if they teach another Jesus, then they teach another gospel. And a Jesus that, was, that is not God, who is not always God, is another Jesus that is foreign to the scriptures. So what's the importance of this? Why is this so important? You know, I think, um, I think a lot of people, like I said, they, they, they don't really think about the Trinity a lot because they see it as kind of this big, heady doctrine, and it is, it is. We've, we've just scratched the surface of the surface. We have, we have dusted off the surface. That's all we've done, okay? We could go a lot, a lot deeper. But the truth of the matter is, we could do this for a year, and we would still never understand it. So let's just hit it all at once, and then, and then get off of it, and, and go back to um, our study of Matthew. But I do want you to understand this. I want you to understand the importance of this. It's kind of like learning grammar. Fact of the matter is that you were talking long before you learned the rules of grammar. And there's probably quite a few of us here today that you can, you can I mean, you don't really understand the rules of grammar, but you can communicate just fine, right? And so what's the point of learning the rules of grammar? To communicate better right? To write better, to talk better, to, to present better, right? And so you can communicate without the rules, but knowing the rules will make you that much better of a communicator. And beloved, you, you can live the Christian life without necessarily understanding or being able to affirm the doctor, uh, not affirm, but being able to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. So why should we learn it? To live better, to live the Christian life better, to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what's the importance of the Trinity? Why, why is this so important? There's, uh, as we say in our church, our goal is to help you to proclaim Christ so that we might live the faith, know the faith, live the faith, and share the faith and beloved, the Trinity is the foundation of our entire Christian life. The Trinity is the foundation of everything we do. We just don't necessarily know it. Like, for example, let's just talk about how we know the faith, knowing the faith. What does knowing the truth of the Trinity, what does that do for us? It produces humility. It produces humility. God says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, he says, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Understand that God is so much higher than us. And there, and, and there are times when we come across a teaching of God that we just really can't get to the bottom to. It's, it's so profound. It is so big that it helps us to see how small we are. And beloved, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. We want God to be big and us to be small in our lives. Bad things happen when we get that wrong. And so we want God to be big and us to be small. A God we can figure out is a God we've made up. Someone said one time, wise is the Christian 
who doesn't try to solve the mystery, but relishes in it. And beloved, I have no interest in trying to solve the mystery of the Trinity. But you know what I am interested in? Worshiping the Trinity forever. That's what I'm interested in. That's what I wanna do. I don't wanna try to solve it. I don't wanna try to solve him. I want to worship him. But also our salvation. Who saved us? Who saved you? Was it Jesus? Or was it the Father? Or was it the Spirit? Who saved you? Yes. You know, in Christian churches, we tend to emphasize the work of Christ, which is good, and, and biblically, we, we, we do that. But you are saved by the Father, Son, and Spirit. There is no sense in which the Father is up there mad at us, wanting to strike us all down, and, and poor Jesus has to come up and say, oh, God, please just be patient. Please just, just give them time and let me have a little more time. That's a pagan God. And that is not the God of the Bible. God the Father saved you. God the Son saved you. God the Spirit saved you. The Father elected you. The, the Son redeemed you. And the Spirit applied their work to you. He came and got you. Imagine you're in a burning house and the firemen come and there's two firemen. One of them hovers in a helicopter above the house and, and he's looking down and he's planning the, uh, the rescue and he's getting it all ready. He has the bird's eye view so he can see what's going on. And then the second fireman lowers down into the house to get you. And when he lowers down to get you, he ties a rope around you to pull you back up to safety to the helicopter out of the burning house. Which one saved you? The guy up top hovering, the fireman who came down, or the rope? Which one, which one rescued you? Yes. Yes. Now, again, don't take that illustration too far because it breaks down very quickly. But you see the point is that God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit are all working together to save your soul. The Father elected you, the Son redeemed you, and the Spirit came and got you. Let's talk about living the faith. What, how does this work in our, in our daily life? How do we live the doctrine of the Trinity? How does this affect us? Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that the doctrine of the Trinity is already affecting you. It's already uh, the basis of what you're doing. You just, you just don't know it, possibly. And so what's happening here? Well, let's talk about prayer, for example. And in Romans chapter eight, verses 26 and 27, Paul says that, that we don't even know how we ought to pray, and yet the Spirit is there uh, interceding for us with groans that are, that are too deep for words. Later on in that chapter, in verse 34, it says that the Son is there interceding before the Father, how does that work? We have the Spirit and the Son interceding on our behalf for the Father. How does that work? Galatians chapter four, uh, four verses five and six. He says, to redeem those. Now, who did that? That was the Son, right? In fact, the verse above it talks about how now that we are, have the adoption as sons, right? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now it goes on and says in, uh, in verse six, I think I've got that there, don't I? 
Yeah, and because you are sons, now that's us in Christ, right? And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Do you see the Trinitarian work there? You see, when we pray, we are crying out, Abba, Father. We're praying to the Father. We are praying in our adoption as sons. So we are praying in the name of Jesus. And we are enabled, empowered to do so by the Spirit. Beloved, there is, there is a holy grain to prayer. There is a holy motion to prayer. Very powerful verse. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And so our prayer is enabled by the Trinity. The God sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts. And through that power, we cry out, Abba, Father. So there's a kind of a grain to prayer. Just like when you carve a wood sculpture, you cut with the grain. You can cut against the grain, sure. But if you cut with the grain, there's a, there's a smoothness to it. And in the same way, there is a, there is a grain to prayer that we pray in the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Son, to the Father. And Ephesians chapter five, verses 18 through 21, gives that same illustration, that same teaching, but applies it to our worship. When we worship, we are worshiping to the praise of his glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, through the enablement and power of the Holy Spirit. And so our worship is Trinitarian. Our prayer is Trinitarian. Our salvation is Trinitarian. Everything we do, the Trinity is the foundation of everything we do in the Christian life. It's also the foundation of sharing the faith, of sharing the faith, our mutual love. What does Jesus pray? His last prayer recorded on earth in John 17 what does he pray? He says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You know, one thing we might ask is do I love my brother? Do I love my sister the way that the son loves the father and that the father loves the son and that they both love the spirit. That would build unity, wouldn't it? Would that not be mutual love? That I, that I love my Christian community, I love, think about what that would do for your marriage. I love my husband and wife the way that Christ loves the Father and the way that the Father loves the Son. You say, I can't do that. Actually, yes, you can, because that's why Jesus has made himself known to you to enable you to do just that. Imperfectly, yes. But the principle stands. That's why Jesus made himself known to you so that the love of the Father and the Son, the love that they have for one another will be in you. 
That's sharing the faith. What about unity? Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, verses three through six, I think I only have three on the board, but look what he says. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. The Trinity is the foundation of our unity. Christ's prayer as he is going to the cross, he prays to the Father that, he, that we may be one as he and his Father are one. Beloved, when you're tempted to cause disunity, when you're tempted to cause disharmony, when something is going on that you don't like and you're ready to kind of get out there and tell people exactly what you think, you might stop and ask yourself, is what I'm about to do something that Jesus would do to his father? Is what I'm about to do something that the father would do to the son? Is what I'm about to say to my wife, is what I'm about to say to my children something that the Spirit would say to the Father or to the Son? If it isn't, don't say it. Don't do it. The Trinity is the basis. And by the way, that does apply to social media. That does apply to the telemarketers that call you. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> that does apply to people who don't vote the same way we do. That does apply to the ones who don't like our president or don't like their president or whatever the case may be. Beloved, our unity comes from something greater. It comes from the unity of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Trinity is the basis of that. So, we must acknowledge our God. We must acknowledge these fundamental truths of our God. Two fundamental truths that there is one God and there are three divine persons and we must see the importance of that doctrine. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, for the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we through many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That's what our Trinity God has made us. That's what our triune God has accomplished in us. We are one body of Christ. And he has brought us together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit to the praise of his eternal glory. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. I've shared this before, but uh, there were, uh, when my mom retired, she cleaned out all of her, cleaned out all of her classroom stuff. And, and she had this huge box of marbles and she gave them to my children. 
And those things became the bane of my existence. Everywhere you went, there were marbles in our house. Everywhere you stepped, everywhere you went, they were everywhere. And, and the kids would take them and spill them out on the floor. And some of them were magnetized. And those that were magnetized would kind of cling to each other. And then others were unmagnetized and they would just kind of spread all over the place. And, and those were the ones we really loved. You see, there was a power inside those certain marbles that, that pulled them together that magnification that pulled them together, that magnetic force that brought those marbles together. And beloved, if you know Jesus Christ this morning, there is a magnetic power within us that brings us together in covenant, in unity, and in love. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what our unity is based on. So if you're here this morning and you don't know the gospel, maybe you have been believing in another Jesus. Maybe you have repented of sins. You've tried to turn over a leaf, but you really haven't turned to Christ. I pray this morning that you'll turn to him. Christ has done all the work. He has saved you because he is God. He is fully man so he can represent you. He is fully God so that his power can save you. And he is all sufficient for your salvation. He is all we need. And if you don't know Christ this morning, then I would love to talk with you. I would love to share him with you so that you may know the Christ of the Bible Christ, the eternal Son of God, who died for your sins and rose for your justification. Father, we thank you for our time together today, and I pray for each one that is here, that, Lord, you may bring us together in Christ. There's always things that can separate us, preferences and political leanings and uh, face mask or non-face mask or uh, just whatever little things that we all like to fight and divide over. And yet, Lord, you are so much greater than all of those things. Our unity comes not from our, our common ideals or preferences, but Lord, our unity comes from the fact that we are all sinners saved by the all-sufficient grace that you have given us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I pray this morning that if there's one here who does not know Christ, that you would draw them to yourself. And maybe there's one here this morning that Lord, for whatever reason, as you look at their lives, you look at what's going on, maybe they've been sidetracked by something that is, that is lesser. Maybe they've come to recognize that when people look at me right now, they don't see Christ. They see division. They see anger. They see, they see all these other things. Father, may you Bring them back gently, convict them, and let them know you're ready to forgive them. 
And Lord, may when, when the community looks at our church, may they see Jesus Christ in us through the unity that you have given us in him. I'm gonna ask you to stand this morning. If you're here and you don't know Christ, if you're here and you have questions, if you're here and you perhaps you want to become a part of Calvary Baptist Church, if you're here this morning and perhaps you just wanna be prayed for, whatever the case may be, I, I invite you to come. You don't have to talk to me. You can come to the front and pray if you'd like or Maybe there's someone in the congregation you're a little more comfortable to talk to. You can certainly go to them, pull them aside. They won't mind. Whatever it is, I'm just gonna ask you to bow your heads for just a moment and just reflect on the truths we've talked about as our musicians play. And however it is that the Lord is, Lord's truth is having its impact on you this morning, I pray. You would say, not my will, but yours be done.